Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, This morning we look at God's plan for Israel, God's plan for Israel. Uh, And in fact, we assume that according to the book of Romans, that God does have a plan uh, for Israel. And specifically, Paul begins uh, this text with a burden that he has in his heart. He has a burden for Israel, and he has a burden for the fact that they have continually rebelled. There is a revelation that they received, and there's a revelation that we received in the New Testament. But this revelation always, anytime there's God's revealed word to his people, it comes with great responsibility. So this responsibility also comes with the command from God to worship, to worship. And so you see that there's a revelation that was given to the people of Israel, the Jews. They were commanded to worship the one true God, but they also had responsibilities that they were to fulfill according to the covenants. And so. It's very simple, and we see the plight of Israel, even according to Paul. If we don't worship, if we don't live by faith in the Son of God, then we are judged. But this is all true of the New Testament Gentile. What I'm trying to get to this morning is that that responsibility is not unique to the Gentiles. Because before the revelation, the clear revelation of the New Testament came to us, uh, the Gentiles, it also came to Israel. And so you see that there there is a particular people whom Paul is certainly in sorrow over. 
When we look to our text, we understand that Paul is overcome. He's overcome with a certain grief. He's not overcome by his enemies. He's not overcome in the sense that they've overcome him. And he's certainly not overcome in the sense that he believes that God is incapable of acting on behalf of those in whom he has his great sorrow. But I'll tell you what Paul doesn't say as we look to this text. As we look to Romans chapter 9 for the next few weeks that we'll be in it and the next several weeks that the Lord allows. And as we begin to look at this very pivotal part of understanding not only God's timeline, but God's intended purpose in his redemptive plan, according to the new covenant. But I'll tell you, Paul doesn't just step back as we look at Romans chapter nine, specifically verses one and six. He doesn't step back and say, well, we're the church. We're in the church age. Who cares what happens before us? Who cares what happens to the people of Israel? Paul doesn't have that perspective. Paul doesn't deal with that because that's not how the truth and revelation of the New Testament and the New Covenant is to be interpreted when we speak of his people Israel. In fact, Paul is brought with great sorrow. He's brought he's brought to great sorrow because of his kinsmen. I'll begin to read it again for you. Look at Romans chapter nine, verse one. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. So this is the truth. What he's about to say is certainly the truth. It's God's revealed plan. It's God's truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now, as we stop and we look at the overall plight of God's people, Israel, and all the distinctions that Paul is about to make, you have to understand that what Paul is about to say, it's not just some theological position. It's not just some eschatological end times position. What Paul is about to say is it's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It comes from a clear conscience testifying to the truth that God has revealed in his word. And so he's brought to this testimony, but bringing this testimony as he's about to, he's brought to sorrow. If you look at verse two, he says, That I have great sorrow. It's not his own sorrow. This isn't just emotion, but it's sorrow based on the fact that he's about to reveal a people who are disobedient to the plan of God. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Well, why? Why, Paul? Why do you have that kind of sorrow? Verse three, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, we'll stop there because there's so much to deal with. Paul is brought to great sorrow quite simply because of his kinsmen. You can see that there in the text as as he calls them his brothers, according to the flesh. And we talked about a very key way to understand why that is an important uh, word to understand that flesh in this context is dealing with his actual brothers who are ethnically related to him, but not spiritually related to him. So he says, my brothers, according to the flesh, he speaks of his flesh in such a way that uh, there's an ethnic and national relation. He still sees them as his countrymen, as people to whom he would identify ethnically. 
But the problem is he can't identify with them spiritually because these brethren of his nationally and ethnically, they have trampled underfoot underfoot the grace of God and the many blessings that he has gifted to them. So we ask ourselves. We ask ourselves, what brings Paul to this place? What brings him here where he has this grief? Well, I can tell you we have to look no further than what we've already studied in Romans. But we can certainly look outside of Romans because Romans ties in so much of what's happened in the Old Testament. What brings Paul to this place? Well, first, it's that it's what we've seen in all the chapters prior to Romans 9. It is. Quite simply, the great gift of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. It is because Christ has granted salvation to his elect. And because that salvation has been granted to them, then Paul looks at those who are outside of that with great sorrow and pity. That's the first thing. The second is you see the power, the power and faithfulness of God to bring his people to mercy and salvation. Now, let me back up for you. Not only do we see that on the cross of Calvary, but we see that in the first five books of the Old Testament. You see the many times that God delivers his people Israel. You see him deliver them in the Exodus from the hand of the Egyptians. You see him bring them through the wilderness, bring them into the into the land, partially speaking. And you see that they quite frankly, continue to rebel and disobey. And you see that cycle all the way through the Old Testament, even to the point where they are now in captivity, where their rebellion leads them into captivity and the conquest of their enemies over them. So Paul's sorrow is expansive. It's not just in light of the New Testament. It's what leads up to the New Testament. And he's not only looking back with great sorrow, he's looking forward with great sorrow, because quite frankly, as he says it in this text, not all Israel is Israel. Not all his countrymen are going to be saved, but only some. The working of God's plan for Israel, the plan of salvation God has had for Israel, has always, always, always been toward the remnant. It's always been toward the remnant. You've studied it, and we've studied it in our time in Daniel. Looking at how God preserved the remnant and how God preserves his people amidst captivity, hostility, conquest. And yet the people don't respond as they ought. You see that the weightiness of Paul's sorrow is a weightiness that goes all the way from the covenants in the Old Testament through the new all the way up to the end times and the tribulation and beyond. He says that he has unceasing grief. We see something else that brings Paul to this great sorrow. It's what he calls, translated here, unceasing grief. This comes from Paul's understanding, Paul's teachings that he received from Christ concerning what will happen to those who rebel against God eventually. So Paul is very much about to explain Why his sorrow is as it is related to the end times, not just what happened in the past. So when we think about Romans as a whole in Romans chapter nine through 11, we're not only talking about what Israel was, we're talking about what Israel will be. 
who Israel actually is. And so we don't have to guess who Israel is. And Paul certainly provides distinction, and we'll talk about that in this text. But it comes from his teaching. What will happen to those who rebel against God? What already has happened to those Israelites who in generations past rebelled against God? Because now what you have when Paul says what he says is you have the clear revelation. There's nothing after the new covenant that takes place for the people. The new covenant, in fact, wraps up all of human history because it culminates in the return of Christ. So that's why I say this grief certainly looks backwards, but it also looks ahead. In fact, the clear revelation Paul testifies about, which it's so awesome how this connects if you look at Romans 1 and then tie it to what is said here because we want to look at the book in its context. But if you recall, that's where we began. When we first started Romans, he talked about being unashamed of the gospel. For the Jew first... And then also to the Greek. And his sorrow is that there are many of the Israelites who would only go to the Mosaic Covenant, see themselves as having successfully fulfilled its requirements, and then go no further. So therefore, they are locked out of the blessings of the new covenant. Because to be a faithful Jew, you have to believe you did not faithfully fulfill the law of Moses. But that one has come in your place who has fulfilled all of its requirements perfectly. That one, capital O, being the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man, the Messiah. But I'll tell you, Paul's argumentation, and it's been this way since we've looked at Romans 1 all the way to now. It has the air of Paul giving divine testimony in a courtroom. Because he brings up the fact that he's testifying according to his conscience, that he's testifying plainly to that what's true, that he's sitting, if you will, before the divine judge, God himself, and he's giving testimony about the people. You see here that there's a sweeping indictment that's in play, but there's also a contrast to what we have talked about the last time we were together. Because if you remember, we were talking about how for God's chosen people among the Jews and the Gentiles, his elect, there are no charges that stick. But now we see that Paul's unceasing grief is among the Israelites who are disobedient, rebellious, not among the few, uh, the remnant that are his chosen. All the charges will stick. They are guilty. He says as much even in previous passages in Romans when we talk about the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. First, as I said in Romans 1, I'm sorry, Romans 9, 1, first, what he's saying is true. I talk about this in the realm of testimony, divine testimony, because what he says is true. And then what he says is from God. So when we talk about a true understanding of God's plan for Israel and Israel as a nation certainly being distinct from the church, but God's salvation not being something new and distinct that he offers to Israel and his church. 
But the way he has dealt with Israel has been a distinction. When we talk about that, we had better be careful not to strike against that by all these false eschatological positions that do so because we're assaulting divine testimony. Paul says what I'm saying is from God and what I'm saying is true. And so we had better come to terms with, well, then we need to understand what the testimony entails. And that's largely what we'll encounter as we look at Romans as a whole. But to verse one, we must first understand, I consider it testimony and we should consider this testimony because what God is saying is true. Furthermore, it's not only true. It's true in Christ. So you can't get higher than that. You can't get higher than something being true in Christ because Christ is the personification of truth. By that, I mean he's the person of truth. When you want to hear truth, you hear his voice. When you want to know what does truth look like, you need to stare into the face of Christ by way of the scripture. If you want to come to terms with truth at the end of your life, you have to come to terms with Christ. And so his testimony is true in Christ. But not only that, you understand that Paul has avoided bringing in first, you see it in succession, the testimony of Old Testament prophets. He'll do that second. First, what he brings in is the Trinity. Because he's already, we know he's advocating a position that comes from God the Father because he's relating to events that have taken place that God the Father has himself preserved for himself a people. Then he talks about the truth being embodied in Christ, opening his mouth to declare that which belongs to Christ, showing the very heart of Christ because we see the ministry of Christ in Paul's sorrow. Because when we look at, well, why would he have sorrow? Well, because Christ sought to win the Jews first and then they reject him primarily. But also he says, my testimony is one that is joined to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, who is known as the spirit of truth. And so you have this. This testimony that resonates from Paul's heart, but it's not simply from Paul's heart. It's from heaven. It's from God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. But from this testimony before Christ, if Paul were to be lying about what he said from this point forward and listen, it's not only from Romans nine to eleven. It's from Romans one all the way to the close of the chapter that all of this is divine testimony before God. It's not that some of it's opinion and then some of it's divine testimony because we're going to get to Romans chapter 13. And so as we look at even the Christian's role practically after he's worked out what his redemptive plan is for Israel and the Gentiles, and then how should we then, O oh Lord, live in the present age? It's all divine testimony. It's all divine testimony. But you see, there's a weightiness to divine testimony. It resonates the truth with Paul's heart because Paul is the apostle. He's a servant of the Lord. He's our brother in the faith. And from the testimony of his conscience, there's a grief. There's a grief that is certainly in line with the same grief 
the Holy Spirit had toward rebellious Israel because they grieved the spirit. Remember, they blasphemed the spirit. But furthermore, the same grief that Jesus Christ had. The same grief that God the Father had. He had this toward rebellious Israel. It's the grief that was always there and always mounting and always building. And now Paul, if anyone sees himself in it, Saul of Tarsus contributed previously to that grief. But now he finds himself on the other side of it, looking back upon it and trying to warn his, his countrymen that they are about to meet with wrath. So his testimony is one that is a very sober testimony. It's one filled with grief. Well, he uses the word he uses before he uses the word grief. He uses this unceasing grief, and it's such because, first, it's a persistent grief. It's a grief that continues. It mounts. It builds. It's continuous and persistent. Paul's grief. And you see it in his ministry. You know, you hear in the modern age, so many are talking about burdens that they have for the lost and they never do anything. They always talk about a burden that they have, but their burdens are always conflated with some type of monetary exchange or some kind of corporate flair. And then that is how they saying that that is how they're saying that they address their burden. It's transactional. Their burdens are all transactional. Not Paul. Paul is saying There's something else in play. If I could give up my salvation, and I can't, but if I could, I would. So you see, Paul's is is something different. His goes in the other direction, that I'd cut myself off if it meant that I could be joined, uh, uh, that my brethren can be joined to Christ. And we'll talk about that a little more. But it's a continuing grief. It's a grief that's as continuous and persistent as the rebellion that the Israelites had toward God and toward Christ. It is the same persistent grief that shows up in Paul and shows up in, quite frankly, Christians as well as it should. But it shows up also uh, in the sense that you see that they even grieve the Holy Spirit. And if we spent our morning dealing with all the text that shows that, we'd be here till the late evening at least. Showing all the times that Israel grieved God's spirit. It is that they blaspheme. It is that they blaspheme the spirit. But further, it is a grief that does not stop with any false notion. Listen to this. It, it is a grief that does not stop because it's unceasing. It's unceasing. It does not stop with any false notion that somehow because God could not win Israel, and I'll repeat this, that he must simply settle for the church or that he must simply replace Israel with the church. That's not how Paul says the grief ends, because so many are coming up today with the popular notions of amillennialism and postmillennialism and saying that. Somehow we can turn off the grief by making some kind of a hedge or a bet and saying that, well, God didn't really save Israel as he ought, but he did save the church. So let's just conflate Israel with the church. 
That's not how the grief ends. And Paul is going to show us how the grief ends. Because I'll tell you a couple things. God winning the Gentiles was not him settling for anything. When he won the Gentiles and established his church, it was for the means of, as we'll look at in the chapters to come, provoking his remnant to salvation in his name. So his blood, even in that grief, is efficacious. The blood shed for Christ is effective to win his elect among the Jews as he intended to win his church among the Gentiles. He didn't waste anything because he's going to win whom he intended to win. He's going to win whom he intended to win. So it's not that, well, there's this grief and the grief is final And so, well, we're in the church age, so we must just consider that maybe the church replaced Israel. Or maybe because God couldn't win Israel, those folks who would falsely assume these things, maybe because God couldn't win Israel, then we become Israel. That's not what the Bible teaches, because Paul is about to give us distinctions that, oh, I have grief. These people have grieved God's spirit. And they have grieved Christ. In fact, they crucified him. They have grieved the father all the way throughout. Even in some cases, as God is establishing his kingdom in the Old Testament, he's wiping out masses of Israelites. But listen, the grief isn't final because his plan for the remnant hasn't wrapped up. It hasn't concluded. The grief actually leads towards salvation. And you see it even in the ministry of Paul the Apostle, where he sets out to win the Gentiles so that that time of the Gentiles can wrap up so that now in the tribulation age, God can begin to deal with his intended remnant. It is a grief that is not settled by false notions of replacement or assumed identity or any other thing that says Israel will not be dealt with particularly and efficiently. I'll tell you why it's not final, and I'll tell you why divine election is so important, why uh, particular redemption is so important, even as we understand Israel. This grief is not final, and Paul will explain it in the couple of chapters ahead. It's not final for those Israelites God intended to save. We are certainly to weep for those who perish, and there are those who perish among Jews and Gentiles. But Paul's grief will be settled for those who are among the remnant. And that's what Paul is going to explain from Romans chapter 9 all the way through 11. But let us look at this grief even closer and how he explains it. Paul's grief drives drives him towards something. It's not just he talks about grief. It's not just he's trying to therapeutically understand his own grief. It's not he's looking inward, what's called introspection. He's not simply looking inward and trying to figure out, how did I get so frustrated? How did I get so, uh, so sorrowful? He's not looking at it that way. He's building to a point, as Paul does. For even his unceasing grief leads toward the argument of God's redemptive plan toward Israel. He's building. Essentially, what we ask as we look at this is, what does Paul want for the Israelites? Because if Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 
We need to want the same thing that Paul wants. And if we don't want what Paul wants, we should cease calling ourselves the church. Because Paul wants what Christ wants. Christ wants what the Father wants. And the Spirit ensures that it all happens the way God intended. What does he want? Well, first, he wants their salvation. If you look at verse 3, he says, essentially, if it were possible, as I mentioned, for Paul to win the whole nation to Christ, if Paul could do it at the expense of his own salvation, then he would do so. Let's stop there. We know that we cannot forfeit our own salvation. If you did forfeit it, you never had it. So we know we are saved and we bear evidence to that in all the ways that Paul has already worked out. So we know that he's not departing from his own teaching. We are kept and sealed by the spirit until the day of redemption. Our lives are marked by holiness because of spirit empowered sanctification, because Christ lives in us. Paul has dealt with all that. So now we know that he cannot forfeit his salvation, but we also know that the whole nation will not be saved. Why would Paul say, one, that the whole nation will be saved and that he could forfeit his own salvation to do so if he just got finished saying in verses 37 to 39 of Romans chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he went through all the depths and heights of all things spiritually and temporally that could never sever us from Christ. Why would Paul then wager something that could possibly happen after teaching what he did? He'd be contradicting himself. Why teach here that all Israel will be saved if indeed all Israel will not be saved after Paul has in previous chapters talked about distinctions that we have to understand with respect to Israel. And those distinctions are according to the covenants. That's why you cannot add covenants and you cannot take away covenants and you cannot misinterpret covenants. Paul is saying still that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It is not so that Paul could wish a thing would separate himself from Christ so that his Israelite countrymen would be joined to Christ. Well, for one, we have to see Paul's statement in a few ways and in a few ways that are directly related to each other. I would say first, no man can be perfectly righteous in this life. No man, no human being, a part of creation can be perfectly righteous in this life so as to vicariously stand in the place as a substitute for sinners. The only one who can do that is the God man, Jesus Christ. He's the only one. So Paul is emphasizing a point, speaking almost in hyperbole, the way you and I would say, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse. Don't bring me a horse, satisfy my hunger. Two, Paul could not ransom his own salvation because if Paul could ransom it, he's the source of it. Paul is taught everywhere in this book and all throughout the New Testament canon that we are not the source of our own salvation. It even says that in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. He could not ransom his salvation on behalf of, on behalf of others 
because this is not the nature of salvation itself. And man cannot will another man into the kingdom. So Paul is saying, if I could, I would, but I can't. And there is great sorrow that I can't. But here I am. Here I stand before Christ. And here I'm saved. What you're seeing is a true evangelistic heart. You're seeing Paul saying it's not enough that I'm going to enter the kingdom. I wish that my kinsmen would enter the kingdom. I want them to enter the kingdom. And if by virtue of something like separating myself from Christ, I could have them enter, then I would lock myself out and they would be able to march in. And as I've said, you see this, you see already Paul's not countering himself. He's speaking in a very hyperbolic way, hyperbole, emphasizing a point. The same way that Jesus said that great faith, you could tell a mountain to jump into the sea, essentially paraphrasing. Well, you can't point the mountains and tell them to jump. What Jesus is saying is that true faith can move anything because the source of that true faith is God. Well, that's the second point. The third point I would want you to consider in Paul's statement is that, listen, the Israelites, part of Paul's sorrow is the Israelites already had the perfect God man offer himself. They had someone who could vicariously stand in their place. They had someone who was hung on the cross as one who sins, uh, who, who Israelite sins were placed upon him. They had one who appeared to be cut off from his kinsmen on their behalf, and yet they mocked them. They had all that, and they didn't respond and say, oh, we better enter the kingdom. They cursed the one who was there, and they said he was cursed for being there, and they saw themselves as righteous. Jesus already offered himself on their behalf, even signaling his coming Through the covenants and promises mentioned right here in our text. The prophets testified about Jesus. And even in all this, they still rejected him. Paul is talking about the stubbornness of their continuous rebellion that brings him great grief. Paul doesn't say, Lord, help me reconfigure a timeline so that the church replaces them. Or let's just pretend the Israelites never existed and invent covenants to say, well, we were always the Gentiles, but we were also always the Israelites. That's not what Paul wants. What Paul wants is I want as many as God allowed to enter into the new covenant. I want them in. I wish they all could get in. So I'm going to preach to them all, but I know only some will. And I know only God can save those whom he intended. If anything at all, we must consider that the depth of Paul's sorrow is in line with the depth of their persistent rejection of the Holy One. That's the depth of his sorrow. I think here you see it take place in Paul's mind. You see it in his heart. You see it experientially. Paul knew all the Old Testament covenants. And Paul knew them in a perverse way as Saul of Tarsus, and he knew them as Paul the Apostle as they relate to the new covenant. He knew what they were, and he knows the depth of their rejection, the persistence of it. You ever stood in front of someone who 
They are so dogmatically resistant against the truth that nothing you could, you could say would turn the lights on in their eyes and in their mind. Nothing. They continue to find ways to reject what you're saying. Continual complacency in the face of truth. You ever see that? The depth of grief and sorrow? You see it as a Christian witness. You also see it in, in evangelism. You see it in teaching. Where day after day, week after week, you proclaim God's truth and the people continue to reject. Yes, we're thankful for those who embrace it. But now you're seeing the depth and the sorrow of the Christian walk itself. That you also, as one who prays for people, praying for their salvation, trying to lend as much as you can and speaking the truth, trying to see that they become saved, and they just continue to walk in a persistently rebellious manner, even celebrating it. And I'm not even necessarily talking about the world. There's a place for thinking about that. I'm talking about the religious people. That you consistently warn them, please alter your course. Please change your direction. It is written. The word of God says this. And they look at you and they continue upon the rabbinical path of destruction. And there's nothing you can personally do except commit their course to God and hope he changes their course. Because your hands are washed. Well, this is Paul's sorrow. It's a sorrow of a free conscience that he could do no more than what he's doing. And he doesn't want to add anything in the way of pragmatism. You see here, Paul doesn't change the terms of righteousness. What Paul does is he explains the terms of righteousness further so that some could be saved. I don't want to welcome them all. I want some to hear. So that they may have a genuine salvation. He's in step with the Old Testament prophets. He's in step with Jesus the Christ. This goes directly to what Jesus said. I believe that Paul has Jesus' grief. As we should. We should be imitating Christ. But, and as we do. I believe we do. Those of us who confess his name. We have his grief. This goes directly to what Jesus said about the house of Israel. Paul's not pulling this out of thin air. He's not simply dealing with his emotions. His emotions are coming from the great grief of their rebellion, the same that Jesus had during his earthly ministry. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. You're talking about the perfect God man who could prevail against the will. And yet they didn't even want him to prevail against the will. They wanted nothing to do with him. There was no light. And so he turned to the Gentiles. Well, I tell you, it's a blessing that Christ could not renounce Paul. And did not renounce Paul. Paul could not renounce Christ, even in what he said. And let me tell you, I have a suspicion that if Paul could renounce Christ and if Christ could renounce Paul, the Israelites were so stubbornly rebellious 
that they would not accept those terms. You're talking about a rebellion that is deep. It is deep to the point where Paul is going to say God has given them everything. And yet only the 144,000 are going to be dealt with. Think of all the Israelites through the ages. When we get to the tribulation, not us, because I believe the true church now will avoid that time. But when, according to the divine calendar, the tribulation comes, you're still going to see rejection. You're going to see those who understand all that we're saying, that they had their eye on the New Testament church and the church age as it concludes. They're going to take the mark of the beast, as we looked at even in Daniel. And yet only the remnant will be saved. This rejection is very persistent. I would say this grief that Paul has is one that we are acquainted with among those who truly reject Christ. Well, why do I say that? Well, because now we have the full picture. Now we have the new covenant. So when we're pleading with people to turn from their wickedness and to embrace Christ by his power, by the faith that he gives, and to see them reject that, that puts them in the camp with the house of Israel who were formerly the house of Israel, who are not the remnant. But I'll tell you, there is still distinction. We don't join Gentiles and Israelites so close together with respect to how the divine plan functions. The terms function the very same for Jew and Gentile. But the, cal the calendar, the way that God intends to deal with them according to the redemptive plan, there are distinctions. There's distinction in people, in ethnos, ethnicity. There's a distinction first in priority. Not that God is triage people, but he chose to deal with the Israelites first. Not because they did anything to earn that place but because it is by his divine choosing. But Paul identifies this distinction, and it's very simple. In verse 4, he identifies who he's talking about. He says, who are Israelites? Even in that distinction that he makes from Jews and Gentiles, he's going to, even beyond verse 4, make a distinction between true Israelites and those who are not the true Israelites even though they are Israelites according to their ethnicity. He's going to make some distinctions even there. If you were to peek ahead to verses 6 and 8, if you were to just peek ahead to those, you'll see that. That Paul will provide these important distinctions in verses 6 to 8 that we need to keep in mind when we consider who he means are Israelites. Who is he talking about when he says Israelites? Because the term is certainly explained by Paul. And if Paul explains it, we need to explain it. Who are Israelites? Because listen, if we understand these first few verses and the distinctions that Paul makes that we'll discuss further the next time we're together, these distinctions that he makes... If we can understand them, we'll understand that God's redemptive plan for Israel, it's not over. His redemptive plan for Israel is not over. I'm talking about specific 
national ethnic Israel. It's not over. But you also see here in verse four, the, the first distinction is the one Paul gives in identifying them as Israelites. He's talking about a remnant people who have been preserved all the way from the Old Testament. And there will be but a few preserved all the way until the end of the age. He says Israelites. He does not say that they don't physically exist in the present age. If he wanted to eliminate any idea that the Israelites will be dealt with specifically, he would just call them Gentiles. Or he wouldn't mention them at all. He says Israelites to signal in your heart and mine and in my heart and mine that he's talking about a people who have existed since the Old Testament. And that God intends to still deal with those individuals. But what he says is they do not exist to please God in this present age as those who belong to to the commands of the new covenant. So he needs to make a distinction because there are some Israelites who believe that they are perfectly righteous according to the Mosaic covenant. They are left and locked out of the provisions of the new covenant. So he makes a distinction. They're locked out because they've already rejected the clear testament and the clear testimony of the old covenants. And here Paul sums them up first by his effect. So first, what Paul does is he talks about the whole. And then he'll start to, in the verses that follow our text this morning, he'll start to talk about the specific, the particular. So he deals with the whole. He says as a whole, they've all rejected the Old Testament and the old covenants. But there are some whom God will preserve and whom he will deem righteous, not because they kept the provisions of Mosaic law, but because God has willed their salvation according to the New Testament. It's what I said. Same terms. So there are some who make a caricature of what we say. Oh, you offer two terms of salvation for Israel and the church. No. Same terms, different functions, different priority scales. I don't know why men can understand their false notion of prioritizing and triaging doctrine, but they can't understand in the true sense that God prioritizes his people. He doesn't triage them. He prioritizes. He says, I'm going to deal with you first and primarily, and I'm going to deal with you the same, but I'm going to deal with you second. Because God cannot be accused of partiality. It is fitting to consider then that Paul sums them up by the effect. By the effect. Look at verse four. Who are Israelites? He doesn't just stop there and say they're Israelites. And then you and I have to figure out what does he mean? Is this allegorical Israel? Uh, according to Romans four. Uh, or I'm sorry, according to Galatians and Romans. Who's he talking about? Well, he tells you. He gives you the effect by identifying the blessings in the old covenant that they should have received. Look at verse four. Who are Israelites? Well, who are they? Well, let's talk about what belongs to them. And then we'll identify who they are. Who belongs to the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. 
So now you have to look back. He's talking about a historical people, an actual and historical people. These aren't allegorical things he's mentioning. He's mentioning historical things that have taken place that have been granted to them, a people whom you can trace. And yet it is fitting to consider not only what belongs to them, because here Paul's sorrow is not on the basis of some notion that all Israel has once and for all accepted God's terms in the past. But it's also not on the basis that all Israel has rejected God forever. Again, it's not that all Israel has accepted the terms or else there's no reason to have sorrow. But it's also not that all has rejected him or else there's no reason to explain your sorrow and to make distinctions. But you have to understand he means a people, an actual people, because Paul identifies them both in their ethnic existence and yet their spiritual priority in which God has dealt with them in the past. And as we look ahead as to how he will deal with them in the future. So-called covenant theology, which often is a harbor and bastion bastion for uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism. They don't want to look ahead as Paul did for the plight of Israel. They have no problem looking back, but it's the looking ahead that help tempers our arrogance that Paul says the Gentiles must to avoid by saying there's nothing for the Jews or that the church itself has largely been all along God's redemptive scheme in such a way so as to as uh, so as to eliminate God dealing with them with ethnic and national and spiritual distinction related to the Gentiles. It is why the Bible follows a course even in evangelism in the early church age to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That is why that takes place, because of what we're about to see as we look ahead. That's not looking backward, because if we were to only look backward, it it would be an arrogance contest. The Jews should become arrogant to say God deals with us primarily. And then you form an apostate Judaism that addresses that. Or the Gentiles would only be looking back in arrogance to say nothing's yours anymore. That's the past. And then they would develop all these theological systems that we see today to not address the future of Israel with distinction. But we don't look at it this way. He's all he has dealt with them in the past, but he's going to deal with them in the future. Well, why? Because of what Paul says in the covenants that he invokes. First, he says to them belongs the adoption of sons. Here he invokes God's covenant to Abraham and his seed. So even if you say, well, that's that's the past. Well, are you saying that then there is no future provision or future hope for those who consider the Abrahamic covenant? Because we do have a hope that we consider according to the Abrahamic promises. And we find those future hopes in the new covenant. Verse five not only deals with what they have rejected, but verse five deals with what is also theirs. He says, Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Listen, because Christ, according to the Davidic covenant, 
according to the Abrahamic covenant, according to what we would say the Adamic covenant with no covenant theology flair, but just the creation mandate, the Genesis 315 uh, first uh, first promise related to the seed and how that works itself out in the Abrahamic covenant. We understand that Christ comes from them as a people. That he is an Israelite from among the people. From the, he's a lion from the tribe of Judah. So that they can't say, well, we won't serve a Gentile king. No, you're serving a king that actually, according to the flesh, flesh and bones, came from your people. So you have no excuses to reject them. And yet... Paul deals with his lordship, his eternality, the fact that he's eternal. He says Christ according to the flesh, but oh, by the way, he's also deity because he says he's overall. He's showing you how there's agreement with the testimony of Christ, even from his own lips. God blessed forever. All the things we talked about related to not only divine pleasure, but think of the covenants that are actually unconditional, that God intended to fulfill them on the basis of God's name and how Christ is the fulfillment of them. That's the way Paul is speaking. He's saying all this belonged to you. He talks about what is theirs. What is theirs then? What belongs to the Israelites? Paul deals with that first before he deals with who these Israelites are. As we look kind of backwards and forwards and putting the pieces together in this text, I end with verse four because of the things that he says. He says adoption as sons. And when he says the glory, he's talking about the glory of belonging to the one true God, Yahweh. But when he talks about glory, he's talking about the glory of his name as expressed through the covenants. The Adamic. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the priestly, the Davidic, all theirs. All these covenants are theirs. And then he talks about what within those covenants, how the promises are expressed. He talks about the first five books, the books of Moses, what we know as the Pentateuch or the Torah. He talks about first the service in the tabernacle. That God not only gave, but he gave location and the specifications. Here's where I want it. Here's how I want it built. Same thing with the temple. Where his glory was. The Shekinah glory. And all that was promised. And then he goes to the ultimate seed. According to the Abrahamic promise. The seed of the woman promised to crush the seed of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Paul says all those things were yours. It was yours. But as we look next time, let's consider this. It's not that God had failed. So Paul's grief is God couldn't make good on this. So now we have to come up with something. We have to formulate something. It's not that God had failed. That is not why Paul grieved. Paul is grieving because Israel failed. Israel failed. It was Israel who failed. 
And for the next time, I want to leave you with a question that is going to govern the rest of probably our time in Romans, but certainly the rest of our time in Romans 9 to 11. Israel has indeed failed. But I leave you with this question that we are going to answer. Has all Israel failed? Has all Israel failed? I join that to another question that we will answer. We know that some has failed. Has all Israel failed? And whoever has failed among Israel, is their failure final? That's what Paul will intend to address in the next two chapters. Because listen, I'll tip my hand here. We know God's word promising their salvation according to his election to them as his nation. That has not failed. Because if God and his salvation has failed for them, then it could fail for us. And we know it hasn't failed. So now we're going to talk about how and why next time we're together.